I guess you could imagine being there, the first Pentecost, the first time the gospel was preached, the first Pentecost following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 3,000 people responded to the gospel message. Luke writes in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, they gladly received his words. And that day, 3,000 people were baptized and added to the Lord's kingdom. And the church grew even after that with sort of rapid speed. You get to Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, and Luke says there are 5,000 Christians at that point, and that's just counting the men. And so there was rapid growth and there was this rapid expansion of Christianity. And as exciting as that would have been, it would have been equally challenging. Just think about how they were going to keep all of these new Christians together and the challenge it would have been to keep everybody on the straight and narrow and ensure that nobody slipped through the cracks. And we might read the book of Acts and assume, well, they had the apostles and they had the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit. And while they had those things and we don't. They weren't at any more of an advantage than we are as it relates to trying to keep God's people faithful. We're really not that much different from them. Don't we love for the gospel to go out and for people to respond to it? Heaven rejoices when people respond with penitent hearts and obey the gospel. Luke 15, 10, after we've planted and watered and God gives the increase. First Corinthians chapter three and verse six. It's a joyous occasion. But the reality for us is as great as baptism is, it's only the beginning. Not only is our work not done at baptism, after a person comes out of the waters of baptism, our work as a congregation, as the people of God, is really just beginning with that individual. Paul would describe his individual evangelistic work in Romans 1.14 this way. I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. I would say that is the obligation that the entire church is under as we consider those that are new to the Christian faith. And so tonight, I want to talk about what the church owes new converts. Now, before we launch into our lesson, I want to first say something to people who are on the side of the new converts. If you're a new Christian present or watching this later, I would say this. You have some obligations to the church. A new convert must do his or her best to be present at every assembly. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. There's something that you give us by your presence, by your encouragement. You have a responsibility to stir up Christians to love and to good works. Be present. You have a desire, you have an obligation to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus and to desire the sincere milk of the word as a newborn babe. First Peter two and verse two. That's your obligation. And no member of the church can do that on your behalf. You've got to put that old man to death and put on the new man. It's a process, but you've got to put effort in to do that. Nobody can jump in your skin and do that for you. You have to Colossians three, beginning with verse one. Seek those things which are above and continue to cultivate and develop the fruit of the spirit in your own life. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. If you're a new Christian, that's your responsibility. But to those of us who are on the other side of this, I want to say tonight, we've had some obligations to those that are new converts. Now, think back to when you were baptized. You're either in one of two camps, potentially. Either when you obeyed the gospel, you were met immediately with love and with fellowship and with aid and help that helped you to be faithful and helped you to stick with it. And I want you to think about how much other people need that or you didn't receive that and you wish you had. Either way, we can't do anything about the past. What we can control is what we do going forward. And so briefly tonight, I just want to give us seven things that we owe new converts collectively as a church. Now, you may not be able to do all seven of these, but every one of us has to be involved to one degree or another, because after people are baptized, it's great. That's just the beginning. Number one, what does the church owe new converts? We owe them a loving family. John chapter 13 and verse 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know you're my disciples. 
if you have love one toward another. Jesus says, here's going to be the identifying mark that you belong to me if you have love one toward another. Now, think about the new convert. Many new converts come from a denominational background or irreligious family, and they're coming into the kingdom of God and what they need from us is they need us to shower them with love. We may convert them at the kitchen table with the truth of the word, but we'll keep them with love. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let everything that you do be done in love. That is the deciding factor. Whether or not we truly love them after they're initially baptized is going to say a lot about whether or not they are going to stick with it. And so when new Christians come into the family here at Lehman, we should show them a loving family. You know, Jesus promised people that when they became Christians, that it would cost them. And so in Matthew chapter 10, beginning with verse 34 down through verse 37, he says, I haven't come on earth to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against a mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a son against his father-in-law and against their own children. A man's foes will be those of his own household. And if you love family members more than me, you're not worthy of me. That's to say sometimes people become Christians. And their families turn against them. They lose friends. They lose family. They surrender a lot to become disciples of Jesus. And yet it's worth it's worth it. But we should replace what they've lost. We should come alongside them and show them that they really haven't lost. They've gained and be the family in Christ that they so desperately need. And so Peter would say in first Peter, chapter two, and verse 17, love the brotherhood. We're family in Christ and we should show them that. Paul calls the church the household of God in 1 Timothy 3.15, and we're members of that household, Ephesians 2.19, and we've got to shower love on new converts. Now, no family's perfect. I realize that, and as people become members of our family, they're going to realize that we're humans. We're flesh and blood just like them, and it's not about being perfect, but it's about showing them care and concern and that they're not just members on a roll or checks on a tally so that at the end of the year we can say we baptize this many people, but we really care about them as individuals. I don't remember where I saw this, but I saw a statistic once about new converts. It said a person who's recently been baptized needs to have contact with 18 to 20 members in the local congregation outside of the scheduled assemblies within the first few months if they have any hope of being faithful. They have to have contact with between 18 and 20 members outside of Sunday and Wednesday within the first few months of them becoming Christians. If there's any hope of them being faithful. Now, I don't know if those statistics are true, if you would agree with them. But what we do have to say to people who have recently become Christians is this. We are your people. People are going to go where they believe their people are. And if we show them that we're their family in the Lord, they'll continually come among us. There is what's called the Charles leadership test and he gives you these quick rapid questions who are the last five Heisman Trophy winners name 10 people who won the Nobel Peace Prize and he goes through all these famous stats and then he says how'd you do on that quiz and then he flips it and says name three friends who've walked with you through the valleys of life name five teachers who've greatly influenced you name five people in your life who have blessed you and encouraged you and you often do better with the second list than with the first his point is it's not the influential or the powerful that often make a difference in our lives it's the people who care about us the people who are present the people that are there and new converts need it jesus said i want you to love one another as i've loved you john 15:12 and new converts need our love we sometimes fall into this trap and we say we want to be a friendly church listen people aren't looking for a friendly church they're looking for a friend People don't want the pretense of friendly. They just really want people that care about them and that are invested in them. It goes beyond friendly. It's about friendship and being the people of God. What does the church owe new converts? We owe them a loving family. Now, here's number two. We owe them patience. Turn your Bible to First Thessalonians chapter two. 
In First Thessalonians chapter two, Paul writes to this church that he started in Acts 17. And you remember, he had been there for three weeks for three Sabbaths. And he sends Timothy back to check on them and see how they're doing. But notice what he said about his interaction with them in chapter two and verse seven. He says, so we were gentle among you, just as a nurse, a mother is with her nursing infant. Being desirously affectionate for you, he says, we were willing not only to share with you the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you were very dear to us. You know what new converts need? They need us to be patient with them. I believe there are only certain types of people that can teach other people how to drive. Wouldn't you agree? Everybody's not built for that. Everybody's not built for the jerking. And the and some people, they sit in the car. They, they want to take over the wheel. They're just not ready to let somebody else have it to themselves. And they're frantic and frustrated. It's not for everybody. And we often want other people to be patient with us, but we really do struggle in everyday life to be patient with others. And so it is with new converts. They really need us to be patient with them. You know, when a person becomes a new Christian, it's going to take them a very long time to learn things that we may think of as just sort of second spiritual nature. And Paul says to these folks, I was gentle among you like a nursing mother with her infants. Paul took his time. Turn your Bible to John 16 and notice what Jesus says to his disciples at the very end of his earthly ministry. Go to John 16. Now, we know go here for what it teaches us about the coming Holy Spirit. And that's great. But notice what Jesus says about how patient and how long suffering in John 16 and verse 12, Jesus says, I have many things to say to you, but what you can't bear them now. Now, listen, they had Jesus as their personal instructor for three years. And Jesus says, there's more for me to have it right now. Jesus says, I'm going to let up on some things because you're not fully developed. They had Jesus as their teacher for three years in the flesh. And Jesus says, you've still got some things to learn. Do we really think that new converts are going to be all that they should in three weeks or three months or even in three years? If the 12 still needed some growth and teaching, won't new converts even long after time when we say, well, they've been in Christ long enough. Surely they should be more advanced. Jesus says, I can't lay it all on you. And I won't because it'd be to your detriment. He was patient. Paul would say, be patient toward all men. First Thessalonians 514. Hiram, what does that mean? It means this new converts. They'll say things that they shouldn't sometimes. I mean, theologically, they're going to say some things that are biblically inaccurate. And we've got to be patient. They'll be in some habits that, yes, they need to work their way out of and we need to help them. I'm not saying we need to accept it, but I'm just telling you, it takes a lifetime to work habits in. And sometimes it takes almost the same amount of time to work them out. And we've got to be patient. It means that when people are new converts, they may not immediately appreciate all that's involved with discipleship and the full dedication that should go into that. And why we need to teach them that and not let up. I'm just telling you, it's going to take some time to appreciate all the dedication that Christianity requires. And we need to be. Paul says time. If you go to First Thessalonians three, what Paul says is soon he dispatched Timothy. First Thessalonians three and verse one. I couldn't bear it any longer. So we we sent Timothy. Let somehow our labor be in vain and you struggle in your faith. Paul wrote letters to churches and encouraged them because he knew it took time to grow. I don't know how long you've been a Christian, but I'm sure of this. You want God to be patient with you. You say, well, I've learned some things and I probably should know better. And we want God to be patient with us, even if we've been walking with God for 10 20 or 30 years. What about people who've just begun? Matthew 7 and verse 2 says, whatever judgment we receive toward others, whatever judgment we exercise toward others, it'll be exercised toward us. And so be patient with people that are new Christians. 
Maybe they don't need a slew of Bible verses to correct their theological misunderstanding. As soon as they say something that's incorrect, maybe we need to give them a little time. Maybe we shouldn't assume that they're going to quit or fall away because they've missed one service. We should reach out and try to grab them and bring them every opportunity that we have. But don't throw in the towel on them too early. New converts need our patience. Paul understood that. Jesus understood it. And if we're going to keep them, we've got to understand the same. They need us to be in the end, it's a marathon and not a sprint. Number three, what does the church owe new converts? We owe new converts our prayers. Paul often prayed for the churches that he had heard about that had become Christians, even the ones he had no involvement with, like the church at Colossae. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9, he says, Since the day we heard of your faith, we don't cease to pray for you and to desire that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He says, I want you to walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul prayed for churches, but not just them. Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. Specifically, he says, I'm praying for you so that you might grow and we don't cease to pray for you. Almost every church in the New Testament that Paul heard about, Paul wrote to him and he said, I'm praying for you. You know what new converts need? They really need us to be praying for them. You realize they've come out of the world and now the enemy, he doesn't like them being the new creature that they are in Christ. And he's going to do everything he can to get them off track. And we need to be praying fervently for him. This is what Jesus did. He not only prayed for old converts like Peter. In Luke 22, he told Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. Jesus prayed for an old convert like Peter. But then he thought about new converts. Jesus looked down the hallways of time in John 17. And he said, neither do I pray for these alone, but for them also, which will believe on me through their. Jesus said, I want them all to be one. I want them to stick with it. I want them to be faithful. And if we're going to be like Christ. We need to be praying for new converts as well in our individual prayers privately and collectively in the assembly. What should we pray for them? Here are a few things to add to your prayer list about new converts. Number one, pray that they press on until the end. When somebody's baptized, just start right away praying for that person by name that they never quit Christianity. John 17 and verse 24, Jesus says, I want you to end up where I am in glory. That was Jesus's prayer. I know it's a good prayer to pray. We should be praying that new converts stick with it all the way to the end. It doesn't matter who they are. If they're a teenager that's grown up in our congregation that's been baptized or somebody who's totally foreign to the church, start praying right away. Because as soon as they get up out of the baptistry, the devil's already after them. He's already going to do everything he can to say, "Okay, you've done a good thing, but don't go any further than that. Let's be praying that they stay faithful to the end. Next, pray for their growth and their development. Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, Paul prayed that the Ephesians would have their eyes of their understanding enlightened. Pray that new Christians would grow and develop, that they won't just come in and occupy a pew, but that they would use their talents and gifts and abilities and learn how to good and glory of God. Stand mature and complete. did for the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12. He prayed fervently. That was really his job. Paul says Epaphras just wore himself out in the ministry of prayer. And if that's all you could do for new converts is to just pray fervently, just get a list, just like we do for the physically sick and say, these new Christians, I'm going to pray every day by name that they stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. You might just make somebody's eternity. You never know. We should pray that they come to comprehend God's love. 
Paul told the Ephesians, I pray that you come to understand the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. You know, we talk to people about obeying the gospel and we say you should become a Christian because Jesus died for your sins. And that's right. But the love of Christ doesn't stop there. It merely begins there. That's the tip of his love. But it goes beyond that. And they need to come to understand you think Jesus loves you. Well, that's great, but it's higher than that. You were saved and Jesus loves you, but it's deeper than that. And it's wider than that. And it stretches further than that. Pray that they, to one degree or another, come to understand how loved they are. Because if they really believe that God loves them, they'll stick with them. The love of Christ will help them to press on when they want to do otherwise. And also pray that they grow in holiness and in sanctification. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4, Paul says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to grow in holiness. And we should pray this for new converts, that they would work their hardest to give up old habits of sin and old things that continue to pull at them and cause them to sort of step back and pray that they would grow to be like Peter says, be holy as he is holy. Pray for them. Paul not only prayed for new Christians, but you know what else Paul would do? He would write to a church like in Romans chapter one and verse nine. And he would tell folks, hey, I've been praying for you. Do you know what that does for people? Matter of fact, what does it do for you when somebody says, I've been praying for you this week? What if you went up to a new convert and said, hey, it's so good to see you tonight. I prayed for you by name this week. Is there anything that I could pray for you about? They'd say these people really love me. Because you only talk to God about the most intimate things and about the people and things that matter most to you. They've been praying for me. They care about me. We should let them know on occasion. I'm praying for you. I really hope you stick with it. You mean something to us. What do we owe new Christians? We owe my prayers publicly and in our own private lives. Specifics that they need in order to press on. Next, what does the church owe new converts? No stumbling blocks. This is where Andrew read for us at the beginning of this lesson, and it's crucial. Go ahead and turn your Bible to Matthew 18, because in this passage, Jesus gives one of his strongest words of warning that you find anywhere in the New Testament. After he talks about children in the first five verses, he talks about new converts. And in verse six, he says he's not talking about children here. He's talking about new Christians, infant believers in him. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it'd be better for him that a millstone were cast around his neck and he was thrown into the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of temptations. Sorry, that temptations come into the world. Woe to the one by whom they come. We should be sure that we never cause a new convert to stumble. We need to do everything in our power. To keep them from stumbling. Listen to how harsh Jesus is. Jesus is saying it would be better for you and for me to cast a tie millstone around our neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea than to cause a new Christian to stumble. When new Christians come into our midst, we should be extra careful to watch our mouth around them. I mean, that's true about everybody in general. But Jesus says especially about new Christians. The goal is Christ to be like Jesus. But the reality of it is when somebody obeys the gospel and they come into our congregation, they just assume they can't help it. They assume we're the spiritual professionals and they assume whatever we do must be acceptable. And however we carry ourselves must be OK with God because we've been walking with Christ longer than them. And so what they see us do, they'll wonder. Paul was scrupulous and he was cautious about what he did with Christians. He never wanted to be guilty of causing anybody to stumble. Paul said we worked night and day when we could have charged and been paid to preach, but we didn't want to be a stumbling block to you. First Thessalonians two nineteen. He said, I won't eat meat again if it causes my brother to stumble. First Corinthians eight thirteen. Paul said, I never, ever want to be a stumbling block. I want to help people to get over. We might think of this as a small thing. 
but it's extremely important. The University of Utah, their Outland Resources Department, they ran a study and they found that 47,000 people in the United States every year go to the emergency room or to the doctor because they've been bitten by some type of animal, some type of wildlife. They ran a study and you might guess what's the most dangerous animal in our world, the most dangerous creature in our world that might do us bodily harm. Lions and bears. They said mosquitoes. Did you know 750,000 to a million people die every year because they've been bitten by a mosquito? They carry malaria, the West Nile, Zika, the dangerous. They carry so many things that can kill people. They count 100 million mosquitoes in our world. Sometimes it seems like that many in your backyard, but they're in our world. That would be 16,000 for every one human. But mighty. Zechariah says, who despised the of small things, Zechariah 4.10, it makes a difference, and your influence does. And so if new Christians hear you gossiping about other Christians, they may think, well, hey, it's just like the world here. It's just how it works. They do that at my office, and they do that in the church. No big deal. How many new Christians have had their zeal and their fire put out because as they're zealous, we kind of come alongside them and try to, you know, sober them up to reality. Hey, it's not going to always be like this, and you won't last for long. You'll be like us momentarily. We sometimes do this with marriage advice, right? Newlyweds, we say, listen, it's not going to last. You know, realism is helpful, but pessimism never is. Well, we should people. We should people. Keep your fire burning. Woe to the one who stands before the judgment seat of God. Stumble because of his or her behavior. Paul says, you really don't want that on your account. We owe new Christians a walk free from. We should do. It's easy for them to walk in the light. Sometimes Christians fall away because of somebody's snide remark. Somebody says something off the wall to them about what they've said in Bible class or about the way that they carry themselves, not realizing that it's a sensitive time for them and they're a new creature in Christ. And we should be careful. Jesus says, if you do that, you really don't want to see me at the judgment. What does the church owe new Christians? We owe them growth and participation. First Corinthians 12 says that every one of us has a gift. Paul describes this picture as the body. And he says everybody's been baptized into Christ by the same spirit. First Corinthians 12, 13. And every one of us has something that we can offer the kingdom of God. You know what we owe new Christians? We owe them participation and involvement. We owe them an opportunity to get involved in the work of the church. But we sometimes think to ourselves, well, not so They've got to wait a little while and they've got to sort of earn their right to get involved in the work of the kingdom. It's a grave mistake to do that. Now, I don't think we should turn Bible class loose to them or have them up doing the preaching right away. But we should say, I wonder where your gifts and talents lie. I wonder where your gifts and abilities are. And as soon as we can, we should thrust them full speed in the work of the Lord. This man is Adam Savage. Half of the duo of the Mythbusters. You may know him. He has an elaborate workshop and he has this philosophy, which he calls. First law of retrievability, no drawers mainly in his workshop. Everything hangs on something. And he lives his life by this philosophy, at least as it applies to his workshop. He says tools go to the drawer to die. And so he wants everything. He says, if you can't see it, then you won't. Eventually, it'll be useless to you. And that's true in the kingdom of God. You just keep telling people not this quarter, next quarter. You just keep telling people you're too new to do that. You just keep telling people, well, we've already got that covered. And this person's been doing this so long. You just keep shooting down people's ideas unnecessarily. It won't be long before they resign and they retire 
because their gifts and abilities haven't been appreciated and they haven't been entered into the kingdom of God. Paul says we all have something to offer. First Corinthians 12 is a comforting passage and it's a challenging one. It's comforting because it says you can't do everything and you don't have to do everything. Paul says every one of us has a part to play, but it's challenging because it says every one of us has to do something because we've been given something. And you may be a foot or a hand or an eye, but Paul says you and we should let new converts come in and find their way. One institute of research says we retain 10 percent of what we read. If you read something, there's a 10 percent chance you'll remember. They say if you see it and you hear it, there's a 50 percent chance you may retain it that way. It goes up to 80 percent if you're involved in what you're doing. If somebody comes alongside and says, hey, I want you to help me with this. It's all the way up to 95 percent once you start teaching it to other people. If we want to retain new converts, if they just simply hear the truth and we preach at them and tell them what they need to do to be involved there, there's a chance they may remain faithful. But the numbers grow exponentially when we say, listen, you are part of this. And you're in our family and we want you to grow and we want you to participate. Second Timothy four and verse 11 says that Mark was useful to Paul for the ministry. And Barnabas saw that when Paul didn't. And I think that's the very thing that kept young John Mark faithful. And he wrote the second gospel account in our Bible. We owe new converts opportunity to get involved. And that means we've got to get to know them. What do you like to do? What do you think you're good at? Because when talent and ability and interest collides with opportunity, You've got somebody that's going to stick around. New Christians need a job. They need a friend and they need to know their worth and their value. We owe new Christians an opportunity for growth and participation in the body. Number six, we owe them a fresh start. Paul was a Christian after he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. And you remember what he said about himself in first Timothy chapter one and verse twelve, that grace was administered on him. God called him into the ministry. He was a blasphemer persecutor and an insolent man. And we love so familiar with Paul that we really can't see Saul. And I think that's a great thing. And it says a lot about how much he changed once he became a Christian. But it wasn't that easy for people that knew him before his conversion. When Paul came into the church at Jerusalem in Acts chapter nine, they kept him at an arm's length. Acts nine, twenty six and twenty seven. They said, Paul, we're not so sure you're converted. This actually may be a hoax so that you can get in and do us harm. And Barnabas stepped up and said he's already been testifying about the Lord in Damascus. He really is genuine. You know, you may know a lot of people in this area in Bowling Green. You may know a lot of people in Warren County. And sometimes a person comes to our assembly and they begin to get interested in Christianity. And you may say to yourself, well, I I know her. I know her family. I know what this person has done. And maybe a person obeys the gospel. And we kind of hold back and think to ourselves, well, I'm not. So I'm going to give them a few weeks, you know, and we'll see how converted or genuine they really are. I, I don't believe that. Listen, it's not their job to convince you. It's their job to really ultimately convince God. And you know what we owe them? We owe them a fresh start. Not to judge them by their past, but to look with the eyes of faith and see people as brand new creatures. The Thessalonians had been idol worshipers before, but Paul says, hey, it's spread everywhere how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. We love First Corinthians six, nine through ten, where Paul says, if you're a homosexual, an idolater, an adulterer, a thief, an extortioner, you can't enter the kingdom of God. But Paul says such were some of you. You were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Paul knew I can change and other people could, too. And when people come into the family of God, we should forget their past. 
We shouldn't whisper about it. We shouldn't bring it up. We should forget their past and give them the same that God gives them. We owe it to new converts to give them start because that's what God gives. Here's the last one. Number seven. We owe new converts discipleship. Would you turn your Bible to Matthew 28 for this last point? Look at Matthew 28 and notice what Jesus says in the Great Commission. Jesus says all authority in verse 18 is given to me in heaven and in earth. And then in verse 19, he says, go, therefore, and depending on what translation you've got, you may have and teach all nations. Some translations have and disciple the nations, which is right. It's better. And then it says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. All, lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. You know what we owe new converts? We owe them discipleship. Now, I want you to just stay with verse 19 and notice Jesus mentions three things. He says, disciple the nations or teach them. And then secondly, he says, baptize them. And then he says, teach them again. There's this divine sandwich of evangelism. Before a person can become a Christian, they've got to be discipled. They've got to become a learner and a lover of Jesus. That's before the baptism. That's what Jesus says. Disciple them. And then once they become a disciple, then you won't have any problem baptizing a student of Jesus Christ into a relationship with Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But when they get out of the water, he says, I want you to keep teaching them everything I've taught you and I'll be with you the whole while you do it. We owe new converts discipleship. Now, what does that mean? Just think about some of the things new converts need. New converts need to learn how to study the Bible. We can baptize a person and give them a Bible. You can even give them a reading calendar and just say this to a new Christian. Hey, make sure you read your Bible. That's not going to work. How do you do that? They need to learn how that's done. Would you show me the divisions of the Old and New Testament? By the way, what are these numbers and why is some of this in red? What about these headings at the front? What Bible translation should I use? What will be helpful for me? They need a really believe that sometimes people are baptized and we think, well, maybe a little bit at a time. I'm convinced that new Christians need to gulp the word of God and not sip it. They need to be entrenched in the word of God because they're unfamiliar with it. And the more of it that they can get under their belt immediately, the better off they'll be. Somebody says, but they're new. They won't remember all of it. That's not the point. It's to be first introduced to the story. And then you've got all the time in the world to go back and drill down into the details. They've got to learn how to study. Got to disciple them. A new convert needs to learn how to pray. Who taught you how to pray? New converts need to learn how to pray and what to say to God and what can they pray to God about? Somebody's got to come alongside them and teach them that. What about worship? New converts have to learn what to do and worship and why we do the things that we do. What's tradition and what's biblical? What sticks and what do we just do by our hand that's not wrong in and of itself so that they can learn how to discern the two? They've got to learn how to put the old man to death and put on the new man. We've got to show them what that looks like and how to put those old habits to bed and put on the new virtues that they can have and practice in Jesus Christ. They need somebody to show them that. How do they evangelize other people like we've evangelized them? You see, Christianity at its heart, it is taught and it's not caught. We sometimes think, well, if people just come in among us and I mean, if they're around us long enough, surely they'll see what we do and they'll just pick up on and they hear a sermon and surely they'll get it. But it takes more. Somebody says, well, I know what we should do. We should just have a new converts class. And I think that's great. I think that's a great way to start with new converts. Put them in a class with other people who are brand new and teach them the things that they need to know. But I would argue it sometimes goes beyond that. Somebody or a group of individuals must take them under their wing and say, we're going to help you. 
We're going to help you to learn how to be scientists of Jesus, how to be his understudy, how to be his student, because it's our responsibility not just to baptize the nations. Jesus says, disciple the nations. I want you to make them my students, my understudies, my learners. And we owe it to new converts to show them how that's done. When people went to Jerusalem for the first Pentecost after the resurrection, they thought it was going to be just another feast day like they had always done three times a year. But, you know, when they got baptized, they just stayed right there. And as Greg read this morning, Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. I don't think it's by design that that verse comes right after the one that says they gladly received the word and they were baptized. As soon as people come out of the water, they need to continue to be in the classroom of Jesus Christ, being discipled, learning how to live the life of Jesus Christ, and they need our patience as they do their best to do so. Baptisms are great, but it's just the beginning. And I know Lehman is a loving family. I just mean to challenge us and say, just think about the people that have been baptized at Lehman in the last, let's just go back, right? Let's go back three years. Jesus was with his disciples for three years. And let's just go back and say, have we given people what they need? And what about people that we plan to baptize in the future into Jesus Christ? We've got to do our best to help them. Now, they've got obligations. We talked about those, and nobody can do that for them. And sometimes everything we can invest has been invested in them, and they fall because there's different types of soil, and that's not our fault or our responsibility. But we've got to do everything within our power to give them everything that they need. If you received it, you know the difference it made in your life. And if you didn't, you know how much you needed it. Let's give new converts what they need, because Jesus says in the end, he wants everybody to be in heaven with him. And it's our responsibility to help as many people as we can to get there. Maybe tonight you need to become Jesus's student, his understudy, his disciple. We'd be happy to baptize you into Jesus Christ. And thereafter, to help you to continue to grow in the grace and in the knowledge, you'll have some obligations that only you can perform. But then there are some that we have to do. And we vow to do our best to fulfill our part. Maybe you've already obeyed the gospel and you need the prayers of the church. We'd be happy to assist you in any way. If this is your invitation, if we can help you, come now as together we stand and as we sing.